Jesus was murdered on Good Friday, and since the Bible never actually uses the word murder, you rarely hear Christians refer to it that way, but, but it was. I mean, it certainly was. I don't know if you've ever heard of the name of the African-American theologian. He died a few years ago, James Cone. Anybody? James Cone was the first one who ever made this kind of connection for me. He said that the cross, the cross of Jesus, was like a lynching tree in the South used by the KKK. I never made that connection before, right? Jesus' mutilated body was put on display as a way to terrorize the populace and to show, like, we are the ones who are in power. And so it was with the lynching trees, right? Both were public hangings. Both were a way to terrorize. Um, both was, were ways to show that we are the ones in power. I never made that connection before. You know, sometimes connections are meant to be provocative, Years ago, there was a prominent television uh, television show host who sat on their program something along the lines of, like, Jesus was a white man. She maintained Jesus was white. And then an African-American writer replied, well, how can he say Jesus is white when he died in the blackest way possible, with his hands up and his mother there watching? You know, some connections are, are intentionally provocative. Um, and I would have never made that connection. See, what a connection does is it takes two things that we think are not related and says, uh, oh yeah, they are. They are related. And usually the best connections are the ones that are made from a different vantage point than wherever we are looking from. It's from the perspective of another person, usually somebody who's different than you that's able to see you know, the different facets of the diamond from this angle when you're seeing it from this angle. Well, the passage we're about to read from Acts chapter 4 is, uh, there's a connection made in it. It's a connection that, like, I would never make as an American man living at this time and place. I think it's a connection that only somebody who is Jewish, who is steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, would have ever thought to make this connection between Psalm 2, which we just read, and the events of Good Friday. Um, and the, I think it's an incredible connection. It's a, it's a connection that you rarely hear talked about in church. And the best connections are the ones that once you see them, you can't unsee them. They, they stick with you. And my hope is that this sermon will help you see the events of Good Friday in a light that you never have seen it before. And that that difference will give you just like greater, greater hope and confidence in God and his ability to overrule egregious evil in this world. So it's a long passage. I've tried to truncate it. We're going to go Acts 4, 1 through 12, and 23 through 30. And let me pull it up on my iPad here. Verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? This is referring to what we read about last week, the healing of the man at the gate of the temple. Uh, By what power, by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers and elders of the people, 
If we're being called account to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how, was he, how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is, and then he quotes, I think it's like Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And then skipping ahead, uh, after their trial, they're released. On their release, verse 23, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they had heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And notice here is where they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and is against, and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, I love this. You know, they basically, they don't... Uh, I guess they don't retaliate. They just basically make God aware of all the threats that are against them. And then they say, just bless us <laughs> and keep us going. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Our Father in heaven, we pray to you again uh, in the name of your holy servant, Jesus, and ask Lord, uh, to, to help us understand your word and help me speak it clearly. As I already said to a few people earlier today, I, d- I don't know if this sermon works, if it's c- clear enough. And so uh, we together pray that you um, would make it clear and speak it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. A lot going on in the passage. I want to focus on verses 24 through 31. There, where the apostles are quoting Psalm 2. And notice how they interpret it. They take these two categories, the kings of the earth and the rulers, gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they interpret that to refer to none other than Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with, they say, the Gentiles, like the Romans, the Roman authorities, and the people of Israel, particularly Annas and Caiaphas, the, the, the priests, the teachers of the law, etc., Um, And they say this whole thing is Psalm 2 being fulfilled. Psalm 2, we think, most likely was originally a coronation psalm. Um, If you can imagine, uh, a king in Israel is going to be crowned. There's a royal parade. There's pomp and circumstance. Uh, A new king of Israel is going to be um, installed on Mount Zion, which was the highest point of the city of uh, Jerusalem. And so just imagine, you know, the pageantry and the ceremony and... You know, all of that. The moment comes for the the crown to be placed on the head of the king. And perhaps one of the priests would recite Psalm 2, verse 7. Uh, He would say aloud, Today you are my son. Today I have become your father. And the crown goes over his head. And, And what's happening? God's appointed king 
is enthroned as a son of God in the city of Jerusalem. And we can imagine you know, trumpets sounding, cheers going up from the crowd, everybody's rejoicing, you know, grand ceremony, everybody's celebrating. Only not everybody. <laughs> because the psalm also tells us how the, the nations surrounding Israel respond to the coronation of the king. Um, they are furious, it says. They rage at this appointment of a new Messiah. Um, here's what they do. They Uh, They convene a top-secret meeting of all their leaders, and they draw up plans conspiring to overthrow the new king who has been installed um, as the son of God. Hopefully, as I reconstruct that, you remember some of the language that we just read in Psalm 2. That's at least a possible reconstruction of the original context. Okay, with that in mind, who would have ever guessed that Peter and John would go the direction that they did, right? that they would say that Psalm 2 is Good Friday, that Jesus arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, his trials before Annas and Caiaphas, his uh, trial before the Sanhedrin, which was a.k.a. the Jewish Supreme Court, um, his being beaten by the Roman centurions, his, the, the crowds of the people crying, crucify, crucify, his, his being um, tried before Herod and Pontius Pilate. They say it's none other than the nation's enraged the the peoples of the earth conspiring against God and against his king. And I just dare say that that's not a connection any of us would ever have made, is it? I mean, how many of you have been to a Good Friday service before? If you're a Christian, you know, probably the majority of us have. We're going to have a Good Friday service. And cool, a cool thing, we're going to do a joint service with South Scottsdale Presbyterian on... What is a Good Friday this year? I think it's, well, it's sometime in April, maybe April the 7th, and details TBD. But usually in a Good Friday service, you have all these readings. You read maybe about Pontius Pilate from the Gospel of John and how Pilate was just, oh, I don't see anything wrong with him. He has done nothing to deserve death. You, You have this Pilate who's saying, I see no reason to crucify him. Um, it it kind of seems as though Pilate is this, is this measly figure who, um, he's just a weak and vacillating man who gives in to the pressure of the crowd. He, he sends him off to Herod, and, and Herod is like, do a magic trick for me. And Jesus, is, Jesus doesn't answer him a word. Um, and so, what is it? Uh, is it these are vacillating men who give in to the pressure of the crowd? Or are these conspirators against the king of heaven? And the answer is, as, as is often the answer, it's both, right? It's both and. Yeah, he didn't really want to crucify Jesus. But yeah, he really did want to crucify Jesus. Uh, th- that double-mindedness that happens to like all of us in key situations where our motivations, our reasoning, it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We're both and in the same person. Um, They are conspirators who raged at God's son. And here's what I think that they thought they were doing. I don't know if you've ever heard, here is, I threw out uh, African-American theologian earlier, but uh, Rene Girard, nice pick of him. Good, good, good find, John. Um, Girard, anybody? So he's basically a genius. He's a French polymath. He is a philosopher and historian, uh, written tons of stuff, but he's done a lot of work, particularly on the scapegoating mechanism. 
What is that? Well, what Gerard did is he studied all the ancient societies of the world, and they're, they're, he looked at the, their societal myths and their stories, and he discovered that this, the presence of a scapegoat is everywhere in human history, that during times of social crisis, societies love to direct all their energy to a bad guy, a villain, a, a fall guy, a.k.a. a scapegoat. So the various tensions that exist between members of a society can be released through a communal act of shared anger and violence against an agreed-upon victim so that when everyone unites and turns against the scapegoat, the social harmony is restored. Um, What Gerard says is it doesn't matter if the scapegoat is innocent or that the scapegoat is is guilty. What matters is that that these disparate groups can all agree that this is the social contagion that we have to get rid of, that's causing all of our, our ill. It must be removed. Another way to think of it is... In the society in turbulent times, you have all kinds of um, static charge, electricity, um, between all these different groups. And what the scapegoat is, is essentially the scapegoat is a lightning rod on which, you know, the society with all of its charge finally coalesces upon, boom, you know, upon it. And it strikes the rod um, in, in death. So what is behind this, this rage? Psalm 2 tells us it's the kings of the earth and the rulers are behind it. What Gerard, who's a Christian, recognizes is that it's not just the, the people in power. It's actually the Satan, the devil. Like that this is the satanic pagan way of organizing communities throughout human history. Like every society has needed there to be an agreed upon scapegoat to sacrifice in times of political turmoil. And that that is the way of the Satan. And so when I think about all of that, and you're following me still, that I hope, <laughs> maybe you are. When I think about that and its relationship to Good Friday, I mean, it, it does seem to explain a lot. Because you have some very weird bedfellows that are uniting on that day. You got the Romans and the Jews, two entities that are, could not be any more different, that hated each other intensely, and they all unite in one accord. Like, this is, this one is the one who is disturbing our social peace. They unite in their bloodlust, and they join together for one purpose, to kill that one, the, the, the one who is distur- disrupting the social harmony. I find it also really interesting and I thought about this as I was driving over. So do you remember the, in the story, in Luke's gospel, Pilate interviews Jesus. And then he says, oh, so you're from Galilee. Well, I'm going to send you off. And he just basically ships him off to King Herod. And then King, King Herod interviews him. Um, and then King Herod sends him back to Pilate. But there's this almost a throwaway line in Luke chapter 23, verse 12, which says, on that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. They were enemies before, but they became friends because they were able to unite around the death of the scapegoat. And so we have, I mean, so many mock royalty themes on Good Friday. Jesus is dressed in a purple robe. 
the, the color of coronation. He's given a crown of thorns. Um, in this twisted parody of royalty, after getting abused by the soldiers and ridiculed as the king of the Jews, he's presented on the, on the stone pavement, and they say, Behold the man! Behold the man! Here is your king! And everyone thinks the death of this man will bring us peace. And in the most wild irony of, of all of human history, we'd have to say, it is through the death of this man that he really brings peace. Not in the way, not in the way that they thought it would happen, but it, it did. Crucify, crucify, they shout on Good Friday. And Jesus Christ is the innocent scapegoat who takes upon himself all the violence of humanity, and he conquers that violence through self-giving love by giving up his life for the sake of the world. See, in the, the wild ways of God, the world's scapegoat turns out to be the father's lamb. Like, and all of the sins of humanity are somehow concentrated on this one man so that through this act of hideous violence, God might do away with sin forever. You know, I, I, I thought of it this way too, that there are really like two kingdoms, two diametrically opposed ways of operating the world. One is satanic unity through violence. The other is Trinitarian unity through self-giving love. And who could have ever imagined that that's what God was up to? Before moving on, um, there's a quick mental exercise I want you to perform I want us to imagine that there is a microphone in heaven, like somehow we're able to smuggle a microphone up there, and it's able to pick up all of the sounds of heaven. All right, play, play along with me. So there's a mic in heaven. What, what, what would you imagine heaven sounds like right now? Like, what, what do you think of? What is it picking up? Like, probably angel choirs singing, um, the, the saints singing, there's maybe trumpets, there's... there's at least that's what anybody, is that what you imagine? That's what I imagine. That's what, I, that's what it sounds like to me. All right. On Good Friday, that same microphone, what does it pick up? What sound does it pick up? And in my imagination, I can only think of silence. As the sun is, is being beaten, as the sun is being mocked, as the sun is being flogged, as, as the skin of the sun is just being ripped off of him, as the sun is having nails pounded into his hands. I just imagine like the angels and the saints in heaven are in stunned disbelief and they can't utter, they can't utter a single syllable as they watch it all take place. Psalm 2 says that there was a sound that the mic would pick up. And there it is. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Isn't that interesting that it describes the events of Good Friday in such a way that God is in heaven laughing in scorn at his enemies, laughing with derision at the nations as they plot against the sun. You know, Satan in all of his rage is blind as a bat and he can't see what the Father has been up to. He's blind to the fact of Acts 4, verse 28, that everything they did was what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In murdering God's Son, they could not see that they were killing themselves. 
The forces of evil were, you know, it was a suicide mission for the forces of evil. And killing the son, they were taking away the sin. They, you know, it's one of the connections I just can't get out of my head. Um, you know, remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross and the Gospels tell us that those who pass by hurled insults at them, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. They laughed at him in mockery. They laughed at him. They were laughing. In fulfillment of Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8, all they that see me laugh me to scorn They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. Like, don't you see on Good Friday, they're laughing. Satan is laughing. The demons are laughing. And John and Peter says, the father is laughing too. For it's the father who gets the last laugh. Like the father lasts laugh, laughs last, and last laughs This is a tongue twister. (laughs) And laughs loudest on Good Friday because the sun triumphs. Let's talk just really briefly about one practical implication. I don't know if any of that made any sense. I hope some of it, some of it made sense. To me, it's, it's one of the craziest and most wild connections ever about the cross. Um, The practical implication is just, as we go through suffering, I mean, Life is suffering, right? That's the first noble truth in Buddhism. Life is suffering. It's terrible, terrible things happen that make no sense to us. I mean, we're raped. We're abused. We suffer um, genetic abnormalities at birth. We have horrible illnesses. We, we see senseless death. And these are just things that are completely out of our control. They just scar us for the rest of our lives. And it makes absolutely no sense to us. Life is suffering, and there's plenty of reason you would think to despair, but the cross is the center of Christianity. And, and I got to believe that if God could take the murder of his son and overrule it for good in a way that nobody thought possible, then like surely there is hope in our suffering. That if God could take the world's satanic scapegoat and turn that one into a lamb, there, there has to be hope in our suffering. There just has to be somehow. You know, I know that for many people today, the presence of, of gratuitous evil and suffering is just a, a strong indicator that there is no God. They say there, is no, there can't be a God. It disproves the existence of God. Such horrible, senseless evil. And our answer to that is, it would if there wasn't a cross. If there wasn't the cross. Like, the way that we have to reason ourselves through the really dark, horrible things is, is like this. Like, for whatever reason, God chose to make mankind subject to sorrow and death. He at least had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Like, whatever game he's playing at with his creation, he has kept his own rules and he played fair. He has himself gone through the whole of the human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty, and he was murdered in disgrace. Famous words of Dorothy Sayers. And, and that is the encouragement for, for us all, isn't it? It's the encouragement for those of us who are deeply hurting this afternoon, um, 
It's the encouragement that we should never, ever, ever think that God is not working. Um, No matter how absent he must feel in the moment, because he had to feel about as utterly absent as possible on the moment of the cross. And we should at the same time never, ever think that we're going to be able to figure out what he's up to for a while. In their case, it took three days. (laughs) In our case, it, it usually takes longer. But friends, if we have a God who was powerful enough to be angry at because he could presumably do something differently with suffering, then we have a God who is wise enough to be working in ways that we just simply do not yet see. If we have a God who actually laughs in heaven at human evil, that's what I keep coming back to. I wonder if this laughing was not a one-time thing, that that there is a father and he looks upon the, the horrible things of this world. And yes, he weeps, heaven weeps, but ultimately he laughs. He laughs at all evil because he has plans to so overrule it and turn it for a good that none of us could ever imagine. That's my hope. Let me conclude verses 7 and 10. Uh, they, Peter and John are called before the Jewish Supreme Court and they're told to give an account. Remember, Peter, just a, a couple weeks earlier, was afraid to give an account right in front of a servant girl who accused him and said, hey, you were with Jesus. And the, the lowest member on the social hierarchy, a servant girl, and he was afraid of her. And he would not, he, he would not stand up. He, he, he said, I do not know the man. I don't know Jesus. Well, here it is. They ask him to give an account. They ask him, by what power or what name did you do this, this healing? And what Peter could have said, he could have played his get-out-of-jail card free. He could have said, brothers and fathers, and this we all agree, there is no um, salvation except through the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the only way a man or woman can be saved is by the name of Yahweh. Like He, he could have played that. He could have played the um, non-offensive, I'm going to get out of this with uh, safe and sound. And instead, he says, verse 10, then know this. Know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. By that name that this man stands before you healed. In verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He's he's just totally bold in the face of fear. Why? Because God laughs. (laughs) Because the Son is the Lamb. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the world's scapegoat who conquers violence through self-giving love. Jesus, make no mistake about it, as I said at the beginning, he was murdered on Good Friday, but he was raised on Easter Sunday. And that's, that, friends, is the greatest hope, the greatest, the greatest hope of all. Amen.